You are now in sync with InfoSec Sync. Hello, and welcome to the 26th episode of the InfoSec Sync podcast, where we keep you in sync with the ever-changing world of information security. I'm your host, Matt Morris. And I'm your host, Nick Thomas. And give us 60 minutes, and we will keep you on top of the latest security news and help you gain CPEs while tuning in. InfoSec Sync is brought to you by VicTech. At VicTech, they pride themselves on teamwork, customer satisfaction, and providing customers with elite engineering and technology solutions. They aim to become an ever more dominant force in every area, product, or service they represent. Visit them on the web at VicTech.net. That's V-I-K-T-E-C-H dot net. And now, for Stories of the Week, ending January 13th, 2017. What's what up, up InfoSec Sync fam? fam? Welcome to our 26th episode. Yeah, welcome everybody. We made it to 26. I know, it feels good. Feels good. So uh, keep sending in your fan mail. It's always great to hear from the fans, especially when we can share it out on our Twitter page, Facebook page, and YouTube page. And I also want to say uh, thank you to Real Random LLC, at Real Random LLC on Twitter, for the feedback on our Twitter page for your topic which we will cover at the end of this show. Absolutely. Random number generation. It's pretty cool. Pretty cool stuff. All right, so let's uh, kick this off with the stories of the week. Um, I'll I'll start off with, uh, you know, we have a lot of gamers that probably listen to the podcast. Oh, tons of gamers. I, I used to game back in the day. Don't really, not active anymore, but... Um, well, you don't have so, time anymore, right? Don't have time anymore. So, Esports Entertainment Association, ESEA, um, becomes the latest data breach victim with data of 1.5 million users stolen. So, online gaming is a big business, about 30 30 billion per year of big business. It collects much of its revenue online together with large amounts of personal information from its users. It has become such an attractive target that according to figures from Shape Security, at least 11 gaming organizations suffered credential leaks last year. So ESEA has become the latest games entertainment company to suffer with systems breached in 2016, and user credentials spilled in January 2017. The organization learned of the breach on December 27th and announced via Twitter on December 30th. Over the last weekend, it emerged that 1.5 million player profiles have been stolen and leaked online. The additional details came from the breach notification service, Leaked Source, which stated it had 1.5, well, 1,503,707 ESEA records to its database of stolen credentials. These records appear to include the entire user profile with up to 90 fields in each record, including name, email address, date of birth, phone number, and IDs for Steam, Xbox, and PlayStation Network. The user passwords were also included, but hashed with bcrypt. LeakSource also claimed that the breach was accompanied by a demand for $50,000 from ESEA. A statement that in exchange for this ransom, the hacker would keep quiet about the hack and would help the organization fix the associated vulnerability. This was confirmed yesterday by ESEA, though it said the, ran- the ransom was $100,000. The threat actor contacted ESEA Early, standard time, early Eastern Standard Time on December 27th through our bug bounty program to inform us they had obtained access to user data 
and they're demanding a ransom payment of $100,000 to not release or sell the user data. ESEA's first comment on the breach was Sunday when it tweeted, Recently news has been made that ESEA's user data has been leaked online. We expected something like this could happen, but have not confirmed this is ESEA's data. This is consistent with first learning of the breach from the hacker himself and subsequently declining to pay the ransom demand, but note that the actual breach could have occurred long before the hacker made it known. ESEA subsequently published a FAQ on the incident. It confirmed the breach, but made no mention of the number of accounts compromised nor any ransom demand. It stated that a large portion of the ESEA's community members' information including usernames, emails, private messages, IPs, mobile phone numbers for SMS messages, forum posts, hash passwords, and hash secret question answers could have all been exposed. The passwords and secret answers have been hashed, but this doesn't guarantee that they cannot be cracked, but should keep strong passwords safe. One concern comes from the extent of additional personal information available to the hacker and apparently in plain text. This would enable compelling phishing attacks to be crafted since names, ages, geolocation, and email addresses are all available. Tailored phishing emails referring to specific Steam, Xbox, PlayStation network IDs, since the attacker has the victim's email address, asking the user to change their password would probably be effective. And that was from Andy Patel, um, also known as Cyber Gandalf with F-Secure. So, ESEA confirms this in its FAQ and advises users to change your passwords, security questions, answers for any other accounts which use the same or similar information and that you use for your ESEA account and review any such accounts for any suspicious activity. Additionally, be cautious of any unsolicited communications that ask for your personal information or refer you to a website asking for personal information. So Security Week has asked ESEA if it will take any special measures to reduce the likelihood of users reusing existing or previously stolen credentials and will update this post on Security Weekly or Security Week um, with any response that they receive. ESEA, like many game organizations, collects revenue by way of online subscription from its users. It does not, however, store any sensitive payment information, credit card, bank account, etc. So any payments made on the ESEA website may not have been compromised. That was my next question, Matt. You know, they took all that information, but the one that really counts is the money. So, right. you know, <laughs> I'm not going to pay you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, you know, it's definitely... Uh, a bad state of affairs, but you know, nevertheless, the personal data stolen is of high value. Account names and password hashes were included in the leaked data, although the password hashes are based on bcrypt, so they're not brute, brute force searchable. However, F-Secure's Patel told Security Week, with an account name, an attacker could attempt to brute force or at least guess commonly used passwords, which probably gets them access to some accounts considering 1.5 million records were leaked. From there, an attacker can try the same credentials in Steam, Xbox Live, PlayStation Network, etc. Since, you know, users typically use the same passwords and logins in many places. All the time. Luckily, a lot of gaming services use two-factor authentication. So there's added protection for those gamers who enable that feature. What's interesting, Patel added, is that the attacker close or the attacker chose to publicize the leaked data in return for a ransom instead of the threat of sabotage. As it is, 
ESEA decided that a public leak of their customer database wasn't worth the $100,000 payout. Had the attacker threatened it, and this gets me right here, had the attacker threatened to disrupt a high-profile tournament, ESEA's latest tournament was co-sponsored by Mountain Dew, for instance, ESEA might have approached the threat in a different way, and the attacker might have received his payout. Hmm. ESEA claims to have located and fixed a vulnerability that was used by the hacker, and the incident is being investigated by the FBI. That's crazy. So basically, they said, you need to try again during this time frame if you want to be successful and actually get a payout. Yeah, so all you hackers out there, uh, do it during that tournament because yeah, then they'll, so, have, they'll have money. Yeah, that. I mean, so you're telling me that because it could have disrupted a tournament, which messes with the advertising money that you receive from like a Mountain Dew. That's what they hear about. Yeah, that's what they care about. They don't necessarily care about the fact that 1.5 million um, passwords that were hashed, but also the secret question and answers. That's pretty big too because that I think that's more reused than a password, for instance. Mm-hmm. So yeah, definitely. I thought that last part was very interesting to see how ESEA um, approached the situation, but... It seems like they followed the proper procedure for breach disclosure. It just doesn't um, appear to me that they have um, kind of like a vested interest in protecting the security of their users. Well, the the good part that they do is um, there's no um, uh, financial or monetary amounts, you know, uh, showing anywhere in their system. So they're not going to get to those accounts, hopefully, unless they get in and start, you know, looking around. And also, I mean, with something like this, it's not like email. So if if your email was breached or hacked or whatever, right, that's something that you use on a daily basis. So you're more apt to change it and take care of it. However, something like a, a gaming service, you know, some people may, especially since it's around the holidays, there may be a lot of people using it at that time, but then it kind of dwindles off and nobody's really using it for a while. But Meanwhile, their information has been stolen. You're right, Matt, because um, last time we heard about this was the PlayStation um, Network hack, and it was right after Christmas, and everyone got their new PlayStations and Xboxes. So it looks like it happens every year around the same time. Yeah, so definitely a trend or, or a potential trend there. Um, but either way, so, man, um, cardiac devices? Yeah, so we, we had talked about um, devices like Internet of Things, Nest thermostats, um, uh, speakers, refrigerators, um, being prone to cyber attack, and, and we've seen that within the recent months. Um, so there's an article about the St. Jude um, medical uh, patches, vulnerabilities, and cardiac devices. So they released security patches to some of the flaws discovered by MedSec in this cardiac devices, but the manufacturer insists that the risk of cyber attacks is very low. So that's good. If they say that it's very low, but you're still able to do what you want to do to it. Right. Now, isn't there something about MedSec actually determining that it was a higher, like a high severity CVE? Um, I believe so. I believe it was 2017 uh, this year, number 5149. That's the one that they're talking about. So the U.S. Food and Drug Administration and the Department of Homeland Security launched an investigation after investment research firm Muddy Waters 
and security company MedSec teamed up and disclosed a series of vulnerabilities found in St. Jude's implantable cardiac devices. Uh, they were acquired um, by Abbott Laboratories on January 4th. St. Jude announced on Monday the availability of security patches for Merlin remote monitoring systems, one of the products found to be vulnerable by MedSec. According to an advisory published by ICS CERT, the Merlin software version 8.2.2 has the highest severity vulnerability that can be exploited by a remote attacker to intercept and manipulate communications between the Merlin unit and the implanted cardiac devices. Uh, The updates will be rolled out automatically to affected devices over the next month or months. Muddy Waters and MedSec disclosed the vulnerabilities as part of an investment strategy, claiming that St. Jude puts profits before patients. St. Jude has refuted the claims and even filed a lawsuit against the companies. Third-party researchers have taken the sides of both MedSec and St. Jude in the matter. MedSec and Muddy Waters believe the patches released by St. Jude represent an acknowledgement of the vulnerabilities and pointed out that some of the serious flaws still have not been addressed, including ones that could allegedly allow hackers to, quote, control the implants. That'd be very dangerous. Absolutely. After Not a good idea. Yeah. After vehemently denying its devices suffer security vulnerabilities and then suing us, St. Jude issued a statement today that effectively vindicates the research published by MedSec and Muddy Waters, said Carson Block of Muddy Waters Capital. This long overdue acknowledgement, just days after completion of St. Jude's sale to Abbott Labs, reaffirms their belief that the company puts profits over patients. It also reaffirms their belief that they had not gone public, St. Jude would not have remediated the vulnerabilities. Justine Bone, CEO of MedSec, also issued a statement, quote, We acknowledge St. Jude's medical effort in the remediation of this vulnerability, which has rated as high severity by the Department Homeland of Security. We eagerly await remediation efforts on the multitude of severe vulnerabilities that remain unaddressed, including the ability to issue an unauthorized command from a device other than the Merlin at-home device. MedSec remains available to assist Abbott Labs during its process, end quote. St. Jude has pointed out that it's not aware of any attacks or other cybersecurity incidents involving affected devices. The company, which has not dropped the lawsuit against MedSec and Muddy Water, says it has released a security update to, quote, further reduce the extremely low cybersecurity risks. While ICS CERT classified the patch flaws high severity, it also said the weakness can only be exploited by a highly skilled attacker. The FDA has reviewed the vulnerabilities and confirmed that they can be exploited to remotely access implanted devices through the Merlin system and potentially cause rapid depletion of their battery. Attackers could also inappropriately pacing in the implemented device and deliver shocks to the victim. However, the FDA has determined that, quote, the health benefits to patients from continued use of the device outweigh the cybersecurity risks, end quote. Wow, this is crazy. So I'm looking at the FDA.gov um, alerts and notice, mm-hmm. um, and this this was for the cybersecurity vulnerability identified in the St. Jude Medical Implantable Cardiac Devices mm-hmm. and Merlin at Home Transmitter. So what I'm trying to figure out, the FDA... Okay, so it looks like 
Okay, the altered Merlin at home transmitter could then be used to modify programming commands to the implanted device. Okay. All right, so basically the attacker would pretty much get after the Merlin at home transmitter mm -hmm. if that's connected to like a laptop or a desktop or something like that. And then through that, when they update to the um, St. Jude Medical Implantable Cardiac Device, that's when they could push the new um, kind of firmware update or whatever that so the, includes. So you're talking about the, the uh, device that's implanted, right? Yeah, okay. so basically they the attacker can get on the medical Merlin at home transmitter mm -hmm. and like mess, I guess with the code there, or I'm trying to figure out, does the device, um, the implantable device have to be connected to the Merlin at home RF transmitter. And that's when the attack happens or can the attack be kind of like pushed onto the Merlin at home device and queued up for next time it connects to the, um, the, implantable cardiac device you know matt the only way to figure that out is to actually do a uh <laughs> do a little clinic and, and and do it ourselves so how about we get the implanted device inside you and <laughs> and we try to uh do the firmware updates <laughs> yeah okay so we'll try that we can use the surgeon from minority <laughs> report <laughs> i just got to make sure i don't get a rotten sandwich <laughs> Or some spoiled milk. So it says, um, the St. Jude Medical Merlin at home transmitter uses a home monitor that transmits and received RF signals used to a wirelessly uh, connect to a patient's implanted cardiac device and read the data stored on the device. The transmitter located in the patient's home sends the patient's data to his or her physicians via the Merlin.net patient care network using a continuous landline, cellular, or Wi-Fi connection. Uh-huh. Okay. When connected to the Merlin.net patient care network, patients can direct their data to be uploaded or can be automatically uploaded. Uploading a patient's data to the Merlin.net patient care network allows his or her physicians to frequently receive, assess, and monitor the patient's implantable cardiac device function. But I don't know if they can push an update through the Merlin at home device. Or, I mean, for me, I would think that you would have to go into the doctor's office to get an update. Uh, that's, you know what I mean? that's interesting. You know, uh, the update direct to the device that's implanted. Yeah. I don't think they would allow, I think the Merlin at home is simply a information gathering device, but they're saying in this case that, um, you can, yeah, either way, we probably need to look more into it, but, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of, I don't know. I'm trying to wrap my mind around how, this attack would happen, but they didn't disclose that kind of like understandably. So, right. Well, but I guess what I can do is look up that CVE and see what that says. Hold on. Well, you know what we'll do? We'll move on to the, uh, the next story and we will, um, cover this next week and get some more information. That's true. That's I have the CVE up now, but I'll hold off. I'll do some research and then we'll cover it next week. All right. Sounds good. So what is the next story? Um, Spora. So it's a ransomware that lets victims pay for immunity. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. So it's different than like CryptoLocker or, you know, one of those other types of ransomwares. So this is a newly spotted piece of ransomware that allows users to not only pay to recover their encrypted files, but also for immunity from future attacks. 
So MSYSOFT security researchers warn about this. So dubbed Spora, the new threat appears to be the work of professionals, um, courtesy of well-implemented encryption procedures, a well-designed payment site. <laughs> this is like pay-as-you-go for malware and, and uh, ransomware. This it's, is crazy. It's, it's Ross, R-A-A-S. Ransomware so, as a service. As a service. <laughs> there you go. I like that. So, and the availability of several packages that victims can pay for so you have a tiered package <laughs> you could be like platinum you know what i mean and it's like if anything comes down you're immune and you could like it's like a, a costco executive membership like you can have friends on your account like and you're all like immune from this so you could buy it for your family we got to like make Christmas sure we something. got to make sure vic gets an executive account from spora we do speaking of vic he needs to get on here he's been moving so he's been busy and tied up but um he should be on the podcast next week. That'll be fun. So either way, those hit by the malware can choose to recover the files only or pay to remove the malware and gain immunity from future attacks. For distribution, the ransomware uses spam emails that pretend to be invoices. These messages contain a zip attachment with the HTA, which is an HTML application file, inside that masquerades as a PDF or a doc. When run, the file extracts a JScript file in the temp folder and writes an encoded script into it, then executes the file. The ransomware leverages Windows Crypto API for encryption and uses a mix of RSA and AES in the process. The malware uses a public RSA key embedded inside the executable, then creates a new 1024-bit RSA key pair, which consists of both a private and a public key. And then it will encrypt using a newly generated 256-bit AES key. This key is then encrypted using the original public RSA key, and the encrypted files along with some additional information are saved inside the .key file. So to encrypt a document or file in the system, Spora will first generate a new 256-bit per file AES key. This per file key serves to encrypt up to the first five megabytes of the file. Once done, the malware will encrypt the per-file key using the victim's public RSA key, and the RSA encrypted per-file key is appended to the encrypted file. So, and this is all from MSYSOFT. Um, they did the analysis on this. Because of this complex operation, the ransomware can perform the encryption without a command and control server connection. Moreover, the malware's encryption process is strong enough to ensure that a decryption tool developed for one victim won't work for another. This means that the security researchers analyzing the threat can't yet help victims restore their files for free, at least not as long as they don't have access to the malware's author's private key. In addition to using a well-designed encryption procedure, the ransomware also comes with a unique pricing model to determine how much a victim has to pay. <laughs> <laughs> the security researchers warn of this. So the aforementioned .key file contains information such as the infection date, the username of the victim, and the locale of the infected system. A hard-coded identifier believed to be used as a campaign ID is in also included in the file, which suggests that ah. the threat is sold as a ransomware as a service. Mm -hmm. You hit it on the head, Nick. I sure did. So by creating statistics of the, start of the targets to encrypt and saving them to the .key file as part of a set of six numeric values, the malware can also determine the ransom amount. <laughs> this is too much. It's like, hey, which campaign was this? Oh, it's the expensive one. Yeah, you're gonna have to pay us twelve thousand dollars. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or, oh yeah, we're not hitting like a, you know, like 
people that have a lot of money to spend on ransomware, at least right now. So that campaign ID, oh yeah, that one's only like $5. Right. <laughs> so the tactic was previously associated with targeted attacks via RDP, which is the remote desktop protocol, but Spora fully automates it. The aforementioned statistics are also included in the user ID and that the victim is asked to send to the attackers when accessing the payment portal. They have a payment portal. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I wonder if you pay with Bitcoin or if they take um, credit cards. They take PayPal, too, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just kidding. Probably just Bitcoin. But either way, it's kind of funny. But the ID usually contains five five-character blocks separated by a hyphen. If the last block doesn't add up to five characters, it's padded with Y characters. Based on this, it is possible to track the number of files encrypted by Spora based on the ID alone. We are currently working together, and this is Security Week. We are currently working together with help platforms like ID Ransomware and No More Ransom in an attempt to gather statistics based on the identifiers contained in the uploaded ransom notes. The ransomware encrypts both local files and network shares and doesn't append an extension to them. What's more, the threat skips files located in specific directories as to ensure the infected machine continues to run. After the encryption, the malware drops a nicely designed HTML ransom note and a dot .key file which the victim is required to send to the attackers for decryption. Oh my gosh. Un wow. Unreal. <laughs> this is like this is like corporate ransomware right here. I don't, I don't know what to think about this one. It's like, it's crazy, but it, it's pretty ingenious in the sense of that it's so organized mm -hmm. that, you know, they're, they're trying to make it a lucrative business, but the problem is it's illegal. <laughs> I think, but, I think the people that do it aren't in this country as well. So <laughs> yeah, they're like, okay. So either way, it is kind of cool seeing the different um, mechanisms that were employed for tracking they have a payment portal you know the algorithms it, the keys right so it's like um ransomware as a service version one <laughs> is cool now you know somebody's gonna have to one-up it and there's gonna be a version two and i just can't i i can't like i wonder what it's going to be i can't guess what it's going to be or whatever but i can't wait to see what somebody I, obviously this is horrible and ransomware you know not good to get hit by it not good, but um, either way, it's going to be interesting to see what happens uh, in the future with this. I guess it's like um, the opposite version of LifeLock. Like, you know, you pay like $20 and, and they'll protect your identity. And if your identity is stolen, they'll help you get it back. So it's, this, it's the same thing here with the uh, ransomware. Hey, you got ransomware. Well, we'll you can uh, remove it or you can not uh, have it at all. <laughs> yeah, so it's like file lock. Yeah. There you go. So they're, they're going to have a logo and everything. <laughs> so there's probably a lot of uh, vulnerabilities that uh, that made those people get the ransomware, right? Exactly. And speaking of vulnerabilities, um, zero-day initiatives and things like that, mm -hmm. isn't there something in the news about that? Yes, that the uh, company uh, Trend Micro Zero-Day Initiative, they paid out $2 million for vulnerabilities last year. Oh, wow. Yep. They published 674 advisories and paid out nearly 2 million to researchers who submitted the vulnerabilities. And you can read about about it in their 2016 retrospective report. Uh, ZDI encourages responsible disclosure through financial rewards, but the company does not resell or redistribute the vulnerabilities it acquires. 
and instead uses the information to protect tipping point customers against potential attacks even before a patch is made available. Of the total number of, of advisories, 54 described vulnerabilities that had not been patched at the time of disclosure, while the rest were successfully coordinated with the affected vendor. Researchers reported many flaws last year, but all, almost 43% of them were rejected by ZDI. The most interesting vulnerabilities reported through ZDI in 2016, Effective Internet Explorer, 3382, Edge, 0158, Windows, 7272, OSX, 1806, Flash Player, 7857, and Chrome, 5161. Of course, those were the, uh, the CVE numbers I was uh, given out there. 1806 was discovered at the company's own pwn-to-own competition. Several researchers stood out last year, including KDOT, which gave 30 advisories, B13OY, 18 advisories, RGOD, 15 advisories, and Stephen Seeley, 20 advisories. These experts have tens of other advisories lined up for public release as soon as vendors address the flaws. 12% of the published advisories are the work of ZDI's own employees. Of the 674 advisories made public last year, 149 vulnerabilities affecting Adobe products, representing 22% of the total. It's worth noting that the November Patch Tuesday updates released by Adobe for Flash Player addressed nine flaws, all reported to the software giant. Surprisingly, the vendor with the second largest number of advisories, 112, is Industrial Automation Solutions Provider Advantech. Microsoft, Apple, Foxit, Oracle, SolarWinds, Trend Micro, HPE, and Google also made the top 10. Uh, ZDI's Dustin Child said, one truly interesting fact centered on the rise in advisories for Apple products, which made a significant jump this year. While one representing 4% of advisories in 2014 and 2015, Apple products rose to 9% in 2016 with 61 advisories. It will be interesting to see if the trend continues this year. Currently, there are 379 advisories pending disclosure over the next four months, which indicates that the number of advisories published in 2017 will be at least the same as the previous year. A lot of advisories that went out. Definitely, and I think uh, they got you with the Elite Speak earlier with um, B130Y. Oh, yeah. That's B-Boy. Yeah. B-Boy. B-Boy. All right, so everybody loves data. The guy on Star Trek? N- no, like databases. Oh, databases. Got it, got it. So um, nearly 33,000 MongoDB databases have been hacked as of today and this is two days ago um that was security week they reported on it but um the latest numbers associated with a series of attack campaigns have been picking up pace over the past couple of weeks so what started as a seemingly isolated incident in december turned out to be a massacre targeting insecure internet exposed mongodb databases worldwide now multiple actors are attempting to cash in on organizations failure to properly secure their web-based databases. Initially, a single hacker was observed hijacking Mongo databases, stealing their content, and holding it for ransom. The hacker was asking for 0.2 Bitcoin ransom, which is about um, $163. Um, And tens of organizations paid it within the first two weeks alone. Oh, wow. 
soon after the initial round of attacks made it to the headlines at the beginning of the year, things escalated as more hackers decided to join the campaign. Currently, MongoDB databases are being attacked by nearly two dozen hackers, and the pace at which databases have been hacked has increased dramatically. Within days, tens of thousands of Mongo databases fell to the massacre, as the numbers rose from only 10,000 on Friday to nearly 33,000 as of this morning, which was on Monday. According to a tweet from Capgemini's uh, Niall Merrigan, the system database names are no longer at the top of the stats, as the ransom database names managed to climb to the leading position on Tuesday. These attacks are easy to perform because the exposed databases can be discovered using online tools and installation aren't secured by default. That's your issue right there. Exactly. You got to <laughs> you got a vulnerability assess, you got to perform a vulnerability assessment and see what your attack surface is, especially if you're using default um, settings. But in fact, while other databases require some form of credentials in our locally our local installation installations MongoDB databases are exposed to the internet right from the start and require no creds whatsoever. So straight out the box, they're turning it on and starting the input data. Yeah, they're starting to input data, they're connecting it up, and then they like connect it to other processes that dump data into the MongoDB. So, for example, if I have a MongoDB database and I don't put any form of like PKI-based authentication or you know, username, password authentication, two factor. Um, yeah. Anything. Two factor authentication, anything it's wide open. So basically you can connect directly to the database and they're dumping the data from that, or they're encrypting the data or making it unusable for the organization. So ethical hacker, Victor Gever, is that Gevers? Yeah, I who think was, it's Gevers. Yep. Who was the first to discover the attack? told Security Week that some companies, in fact, failed to secure their databases even after they've been hacked. But do not underestimate how and why some organizations respond when they find out their their database was stolen. They remove the note and just restore the database, but (laughs) then leave the the server open, he said. Dubbed MongoDB Ransack, the campaign is closely monitored by Merrigan and Gevers. The latter has been long searching for insecure databases to warn companies of the risk they pose. However, many of his responsible disclosures remain unanswered with 138 of last year's reports suffering such a fate. More recently, attackers began looking to cash in on the hype surrounding the campaign, and one of them decided to sell the software used for hijacking the databases. The tool is called Kraken MongoDB Ransomware, and it's C source code is offered for only $200 in Bitcoin. One of the effects of this entire campaign is that the amount of data stored in MongoDB databases has decreased significantly over the past weeks. According to Morgan, 114.5 terabytes of data was lost in less than three days and as a result of these attacks. In fact, that's a lot of data. Yeah, that is but, a lot of data. <laughs> In fact, the security researchers monitoring the situation have already warned that most of the attackers are no longer holding the databases for random, but are simply deleting them and pretending they still have the data. Oh. In some cases, the same database is hit multiple times as the attackers are going for the same pool of targets, meaning that organizations could end up paying the ransom to the wrong attacker. 
Victims should not only refrain from paying the ransom, but should also ask for proof of life when contacting the attackers to ensure that their data still exists. As long as an organization has the proper network monitoring tools in place, it is possible to tell whether the database has been copied or deleted, Gevers says. This, requires, this, however, requires matching tracked outbound traffic with the number of simultaneous connections and the log file and the durations of these connections. This allows researchers to estimate how much data was exfilled. There are over 50,000 publicly accessible MongoDB databases on the internet at the moment, and it might not be too long before all of those that haven't been properly secured are hijacked. According to Gevers, all of the insecure databases could be ransacked in a couple of weeks, maybe even faster. As it turns out, one of the MongoDB databases hit in the ongoing ransack belongs to the Princeton University, yet it's uncertain whether it would be able to recover the data or not. According to databreaches.net, which discovered the attack, the university hasn't commented on the incident as of now, and there's no info on what kind of information the affected databases included. While he wouldn't name any of the affected organizations that ask him for help so far, Gevers did confirm once again that they are from various industries, including IP, healthcare, online gambling, financial services, trading, and traveling booking. Many online services were also hit in the attack, the researcher said. In the meantime, organizations with MongoDB databases are advised to take the proper steps to secure their installations and ensure they don't fall victim to this attack. Last week, MongoDB published a blog post providing details on how admins can secure the databases. I know how you can secure it. You can get the Spora and use it as ransomware as a service, and you'll be fine. <laughs> Yeah, you just have to be a um, platinum member. You just got to be a platinum member, and, and you're cool. <laughs> yeah, you have to have the executive membership. <laughs> oh my gosh! So, so DDoS. Yes. So tell us about tell us about okay, it. Okay, so um, Security Weeks, uh, Ram Mohan uh, did an article: How to Defend Against DDoS Attacks. A distributed denial of service attack is every business's worst nightmare. One minute everything is ticking as normal, the next, your infrastructure is hit by a tsunami of spurious traffic from across the internet. Legitimate users find themselves locked out. Your ability to do business online grinds to a halt, and there's not a great deal you can do about it, unless, of course, you prepare ahead of time. Nowadays, it's frighteningly easy for attackers to execute a DDoS attack. Botnets comprised of thousands of comprised PCs can be rented cheaply, and software capable of automating attacks can be acquired readily on the underground market. Attacks peaking at tens of gigabits per second have been recorded, and the size of peak attacks grows each year. A modest attack can be bought for less than $1,000. It's also quite possible for your site to become collateral damage in an attack against a third party you know nothing about. Witness Twitter, one of the internet's most highly trafficked sites, which found itself knocked offline for hours last August due to a politically motivated attack launched against a single user. While some evidence shows that massive brute force DDoS attacks are falling out of favor among financially motivated criminal enterprises, there are a few signs of a decline in DDoS more generally. DDoS attacks are so hard to stop that it's not unheard of for some companies to surrender to extortion attempts, quietly handling their attackers tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars in protection money in order to make the problem go away. Short of paying out, it's extremely difficult to completely prevent a determined DDoS attack, but there are four general measures organizations can take 
both during system design and live operation to mitigate the risk of genuine users and customers suffering disruption during an attack. Successful defenses involve using all four techniques. The first one is over-provisioning. Many DDoS attacks are brute force in nature, and over-provisioning is a brute force defense. Your opponent simply needs to throw enough traffic at you to overwhelm your capacity. You can reduce his chances of success and limit the impact on your users by provisioning for far more traffic than you would expect to receive during normal operation. You don't necessarily need a provision for a 40 gigabit per second attack. Not all attackers have botnets, optionals that large, but you should aim to prepare for traffic many multiples of what you experience in normal operations. Some people, when designing their networks, have a tendency to provision for their highest anticipated level of genuine traffic. An e-commerce site, for example, might provide enough capacity for a seasonal sales peak. This will really be uh, sufficient to fend off a good-sized DDoS attack. If normal business means 60,000 visits per day, expect a DDoS attack to easily send that much traffic your way in one minute. That translates to 86 million visits in a single 24-hour attack. That's a lot of visits. A site only provisioned for 60,000 visits will quickly fall to its knees. A good rule of thumb when building out your hardware infrastructure is to provision for 10 times normal peak traffic. Work out the most amount of traffic you've ever had, multiplied by 10, and deploy sufficient hardware to cope with at least that level of activity. Similar rules apply to bandwidth, so you must ensure that your contract is flexible enough to permit traffic coming into your systems to, quote, burst to many times the normal volume. You don't want your connectivity provider to shut down all traffic to your site in order to prevent collateral damage to its other customers. Work out the largest amount of bandwidth your site has ever consumed under normal circumstances, then check that your contacts would allow a sustained burst of 10 times that amount. Keep in mind that handling that much traffic will take a hefty bite out of your checkbook too. The second thing is remote slash redundant monitoring. If uptime is important to you, your business, chances are you already have systems in place to monitor the performance and availability of your site. But in-house monitoring systems can be of limited utility if they're under a DDoS attack as well. If a system designed to alert you when the network experiences problems sits behind the same bottleneck as the site it is monitoring, the alert probably won't make it to your phone or inbox in a timely fashion. When you're under attack, it helps to know that you are under attack, and quickly. A more reliable alternative is to subscribe to a third-party service that monitors your site around the clock from dozens of other places on the internet. Evaluating its responsiveness from a genuine end-user perspective and providing alerts to your phone when problems are found. These are usually the the managed service providers. Uh, The third way, dump the logs. Your web server logs can't tell the difference between a genuine user and a botnet node. Both visits will usually be recorded in the same way. Even if your server is provisioned correctly and is able to recover from a DDoS attack flood, if its logs stack up, you can often add insult to injury if your server fails because the logs become too large. While the log data could possibly be used for forensic purposes after the attack is over, its value is relatively limited. It's far more important that servers are able to respond to genuine users during the attack. If you find log files growing large quite quickly, you're faced with a choice between either keeping the data and losing the server or losing the data and keeping the server. If your web server is mission critical and large log files are preventing you from recovering, your choice should be clear. 
dump the logs. And the fourth one, know the people at your providers. While it's technically possible to locally configure network hardware to drop some malicious packets, ideally, you'll want the unwanted traffic throttled as close to the source as possible. This means that coordination with your upstream providers is a must. Unfortunately, if your opponent has done his reconnaissance properly, he will launch his attack at the most inconvenient time possible. There's a good chance that the text message alerting you to an incoming DDoS will arrive at 1 a.m. on Saturday morning when both you and your regular ISP points of contact are off for the weekend. The normal support numbers you know to call might go to voicemail. The night shift staff may not have the expertise or authority to help, and automated ticketing systems may not be as comprehensively attended as they are during business hours. If you can't find anyone in a position to help you, then you're faced with the prospect of two or three days of compromised performance or just outright downtime. In these circumstances, it's essential to have the direct telephone numbers of clued in people at your ISP's network ops center. If you know how to contact the right person to help shut down the attack, regardless of the hour, you'll experience far fewer headaches when a DDoS strikes. It's a truism that most security vulnerabilities are people problems. Fortunately, that sometimes also applies to the solutions. DDoS attacks are here to stay after all. They are cheap to set up and easy to implement. By appropriately deploying plans in these four areas, provisioning, monitoring, log management, and escalation, you should be able to hold down your own against all but the most determined and aggressive attackers. So some really good information there from Security Week's uh, Ram Mohan on how to defend against DDoS attacks. Yeah, very good stuff. Um, I think DDoS is one of those um, types of attacks where, you know, businesses will feel helpless. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you just have a either a contingency or you identify a plan that incorporates like all these points would be ideal, but you know, at least two or three of them, mm -hmm. then you're, you're in a good spot. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So definitely very good information from security week. So, um, random numbers. Yes. What about them? Yeah. Let's go ahead and talk about them. Okay. So why secure systems require random numbers? So this is by Cloudflare's uh, John Graham Cumming. Okay. So the obvious question to ask is, why mess with random number generation? The answer is rather simple. Good random number generators are fundamental to almost all secure computer systems. Without them, everything from Second World War ciphers like Lorenz to the SSL in your browsers used to encrypt secure web traffic are in serious trouble. So to understand why and the threat that bad random numbers pose, it's necessary to understand a little about random numbers themselves. And what is a good random number anyways, and how they're used in secure systems. So as an example of how random numbers go wrong, we'll begin with a hack of the popular programming and technology website, Hacker News. So four years ago, the author John Graham Cumming mentioned on the site that its random number generator was vulnerable to being used to attack the site. Not long after, the entirely independently um, another contributor to the site actually carried out the attack with permissions of the site owner. Here's how it worked. When you logged into a website, you typically assigned a unique ID for that session, the period you're logged in. The unique ID needs to be unique to you and not guessable by someone else. If someone else can guess it, they can impersonate you. 
In the case of Hacker News, the unique ID is a string of random characters, um, such as just a random string. Each logged in user has a different string, and the string should be very, very difficult to guess or figure out. So, pseudo randomness. The IDs are generated internally using a pseudo random number generator, or a PRNG. That's a mathematical function that can be called repeatedly to get apparently random numbers. I say apparently because, as a great mathematician, John von Neumann said, anyone who considers pseudo random number generators can generate a sequently a sequence of apparently random numbers, they have a weakness. Von Neumann used a simple pseudo-random number generator called the middle square that works as follows. You start with some number called a seed and then square it. You take the four middle digits as your random number and square them to get the next random um, number and so on. For example, if you choose 4181 as the seed, the sequence 4807-1072-1491-2230-9279 will be generated as follows. Um, I'm not going to read out all the numbers, but it is random with the random number, its square, and the middle digits. This particular pseudo-random number has long since been replaced by better ones, such as the Mersenne Twister, which output is harder to predict. The middle square method is trivial to predict. The next number it generates is entirely determined by the number it last produced. The Mersenne twister, on the other hand, is much harder to predict because it has internal state that it uses to produce random numbers. In the world of cryptography, there are cryptographically secure pseudo-random number generators, which are designed to be unpredictable no matter how many random numbers it, asks to, it is asked to generate. The Mersenne Twister is not cryptographically secure because it can be predicted if enough random numbers it generates are observed. For secure systems, it's vital that the random number generator be unpredictable, starting with a seed. And all the pseudo-random number generators need to start somewhere. They need to be seeded, and that's where Hacker News failed. The random number generator was seeded with the time in milliseconds when the Hacker News software was last started. By some careful work, the attacker managed to make Hacker News crash and then could predict when it restarted within a window of about one minute. From it, he was able to predict the unique IDs assigned to users as they logged in and could, therefore, impersonate them. Similar random number problems enabled one group of people to cheat at online poker. The full details of how the Hacker News attack worked is here. It's on Security Week. The attack worked because once Hacker News crashed, the attacker could wait for it to start and note the current time. Amusingly, the Hacker News server was willing to give out that information. The attacker then had 60, like 60 worth of possible seeds, 60,000 seeds since the seed was in milliseconds. It was 60 seconds worth of possible seeds. So... The attacker would log in and look at their own unique ID. It had been generated by the random numbers inside Hacker News software, and then he tried out each of the 60,000 seeds and ran the random number generation algorithm used by Hacker News until he found a, a match with his own unique ID. That told him which seed had been used, and it let him keep generating further unique IDs by generating the same sequence of random numbers that Hacker News was using. From that, he could predict the unique IDs given out to users as they logged in, and he could impersonate them. That's cool. <laughs> it is pretty cool. Very sophisticated, but cool. The Hacker News code was used to change the Linux slash dev slash urandom 
source of random numbers, which means that today unique IDs are generated with a good random number generator without the weak seed previously used. So there are two ways in which pseudo random number generation can fail. The seed could be bad or the algorithm itself could be weak and predictable. So um, I'm going to cover some a little bit more, mm -hmm. um, but we should have time for it. So random number generators everywhere. The Hacker News example isn't about cryptography itself, but the random numbers are vital to crypto cryptographic schemes. For example, any HTTPS session starts as follows. One, the web browser sends the information to the server about which version of SSL it wants you to use and other information. Two, the web server revise, replies with similar information about SSL versions and its SSL certificate. Three, the web browser checks the certificate is valid, and if it is, it generates a random pre-master secret that will be used to secure the connection. After that, further exchanges occur all based on randomly chosen pre-master secret. It needs to be unpredictable for the connection to be secure. Here's the part of how a computer using Wi-Fi establishes a secure connection to an access point using the popular WPA2 protocol. The access point generates a random, a random nonce and sends it to the computer. The computer generates a random nonce and sends it back to the access point. The access point and the computer continue on from there using those random nonces, those random nonce values until and it basically secures a connection with those values. So until it reaches a secure connection. Similar, similarly, random numbers turn up when logging into websites and other systems and creating secure connections to servers using SSH, holding Skype video chat, sending encrypted mail, and more. So the Achilles heel of the only complete secure crypto system, the one-time pad, is that the pad itself must be completely randomly generated. Any predictability of a or non-uniformity in the random numbers can be used and can lead to breaking of the one-time pad. The other problem with the one-time pad is reuse. They must be used only once. So cloud, we're going to talk about Cloudflare's random number source. Okay. At, at Cloudflare, they need lots of random numbers for cryptographic purposes. They need to use them to secure SSL connection, railgun, generate, generate public and private key pairs, and authentication systems. They are an important part of forward secrecy, which they've rolled out for all their customers. Cloudflare currently obtains most of their random numbers from either OpenSSL's random number generation system or from the Linux kernel. Both seed their random number generators from a variety of sources to make them as unpredictable as, as possible. And sources can include things like network data or the seek time of disks. But Cloudflare thinks that they can improve on them by adding some truly random data into the system and as a result, improve security for their customers. That's cool. They've embarked on a project to further improve our their random number generators by adding a source of truly random numbers that don't come from a mathematical process. That can be done using things like radioactive decay, the motion of fluids, atmospheric noise, or other chaos. Cloudflare will be posting details of the new system when it's online, and InfoSec Sync will keep you in sync <laughs> when that evolution occurs. Very cool stuff. Very cool. Lots of lots of stuff going on, and yeah, it's pretty awesome. So the music's uh, queuing up there. So what do we have going on this month in uh, InfoSec? 
so we actually have a lot. Um, tomorrow I will be going to um, ShmooCon uh, in DC. Also, we have B-Side San Diego, January 13th through the 14th at National University in the Spectrum Biz Park Campus. And also, I should note that tomorrow I'll probably be at ShmooCon around 5 p.m. And then I'll be there on Saturday and Sunday as well. So look for Matt in so his InfoSexing shirt. Yes, I will be in my polo shirt. Pull me aside, say hello, say what's up, and um, yeah. Give them an interview. We, uh, we'll give you an interview. So Hackers Day International Information Security Conference um, is January 13th to the 14th in Lucknow, India. And then don't you have something in um, in Huntsville? Yeah, here in Huntsville, uh, the InfoSec community is gearing up for the National Cyber Summit at the Von Braun Center. And this is going to be the ninth annual event for uh, cyber training, education, and workforce development that's aimed at protecting our nation's infrastructure from the ever-evolving cyber threat. The summit attracts commercial and defense companies as well as healthcare, automotive, and energy industries. This is going on June 6th to the 8th, and registration is now open at www.nationalcybersummit.com. Cool. All right, guys. Well, uh, that's all we have for this episode. We'll see you next time. And thanks for staying in sync with InfoSec Sync. InfoSec Sync has been brought to you by VicTech, established to provide fast and reliable technologies for the U.S. intelligence community and Department of Defense. That's V-I-K-T-E-C-H dot net.